This week I had um, opened a, and looked at a journal, and the journal was um, from Cambridge, and it was on mental health, and it was looking at the mental health um, uh, impact of COVID-19. It was published sometime in June this year. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the introduction of that journal. So this is a medical journal uh, for, me for me mental health. In December 2019, a novel coronavirus was first detected in the city of Wuhan, China. Within five weeks, the virus, now named COVID-19, began to dominate global headlines. By mid-May 2020, COVID-19 had resulted in the deaths of more than 300,000 people worldwide, with nearly 4.5 million cases confirmed. As cases increased, governments around the world began closing borders and introducing social distancing restrictions and lockdown orders in an effort to slow the rapid acceleration of the virus. Prior to, prior to many of these governments' response, reports emerged of individuals choosing to self-isolate as mass panic swept through communities in waves. Anecdotal reports of verbal and physical aggression in grocery stores hoarding of antibacterial products and other supplies, and racist abuse of individuals with Asian appearance increased as fear took over across the world. As individuals scrambled to prevent the threat of COVID-19 in any way they could, online sales of immune boosters and untrialed medicines increased. Analyses of Google data across just 14 days in March 2020 revealed a total of 216 searches for where to purchase chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. Two drugs which were touted by the media as potentially effective, despite the existing clinical evidence for the efficacy of these drugs being inconclusive. Emerging research data are already revealing high levels of anxiety concerning the virus, with findings from nearly 5,000 participants suggesting that greater perceived severity of the virus is associated with poorer mental health outcomes. This is June 2020. Arguably, this response from the public should not come as a surprise. Fears of death have been proposed to be a central and universal part of the experience of being human. Let me read that again. Fears of death have been proposed to be a central and universal part of the experience of being human. In fact, there is evidence of humans grappling with death anxiety for as long as our species has been recording its history. We are the only species that we know of that has the cognitive capacity to contemplate and anticipate our own death. Yet, this impressive ability comes with a downside. We are destined to live our lives forever shadowed by the knowledge that we will grow, blossom, and inevitably diminish and die. On the one hand, people may develop adaptive ways of coping with their fear of death, such as building meaningful relationships and leaving a positive legacy. On the other hand, awareness of death may also produce a powerful sense of fear or meaninglessness and may drive a number of maladaptive coping behaviors. Some of these behaviors may underlie numerous mental health conditions, while other behaviors may appear on the surface not directly linked to death at all. And this is how the introduction ends. How might our fears of death be shaping our everyday behavior in ways that we are not even aware of? I'm going to repeat that last line. How might our fears of death 
be shaping our everyday behavior in ways that we are not even afraid of. Dear believers, as we look back to 2020, how has fear affected the way we have made our choices? The way we've reacted to situations? How has fear affected the relationships we've had with the world around us? As we look forward to 2021, this is the last Sunday of 2020. So as we look forward to 2021, what does this even mean for us? How can we, dear Westmount Bible Chapel, live when we are surrounded by fear? How are the powers around us, political, economic, and scientific, telling us to order our lives to face the future? Today, as we approach 2021, how are we facing the future? Dear ones, please turn your copy of Scripture to Ephesians 1, and we're going to read, we're going to look at verses 15 to 23 today. Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23, as we consider God's power and the church's position. As we consider God's power and the church's position. For today's sermon, I have just three points. It's prayer, power, position. What are the three points? Prayer, power, and position. Those three. So recap, in Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 14, we had seen how Paul declares a train of blessings that have been poured on his audience. God is blessed, and he has chosen believers before the foundation of the world to purify us and to make us holy before him. He predetermined with precise purpose in his love that all believers would be adopted through Christ to be his children. Paul couldn't stop. All this was done through the forgiveness made possible by the shed blood of Christ. And finally, in that passage, verses 1 to 14, it gives him so much joy, it gives God so much joy to reveal his plan to us. And what's the plan? The plan is to order all things in the universe, whether physical or spiritual, under Christ, so that the Father can be glorified. So now let's turn to our first point, prayer. Ephesians 1, verse 16 and 17. Ephesians 1, verse 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul now comes out of one of the longest sentences in Scripture, exclaiming that God is just so wonderful with what he has done for his people. God is so wonderful what, what, what he's done with his people. And then he turns to the believers and says, by the way, I'm still praying for you. Very recently, we've started to give Zoe feedback on her prayers. So as we pray at home, so how she started to pray, she says, uh, she blesses the Lord for who he is. She blesses him for his holiness, for his kindness, for patience, and so on. She thanks the Lord for his sacrificial death and resurrection, and then proceeds to pray for people specifically. She started to pray that they are kind, obedient, and show patience and love, specific characters that the Spirit of God gives his people. Often when I pray for people, I tend to pray that they'd be blessed, uh, bless this person, bless that person. I pray that they would be healed. I pray that they would be comforted. And these are good things to pray for. But Paul's prayer for his readers is very, very different and specific than my prayers. He prays that they are filled with wisdom 
and understanding of the knowledge of God. That's what verse 17 says, right? That they are filled with wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of God. So the believers in Ephesus could ask, they say, Paul, you just, you just said that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Paul you, Paul, you just told us that God has revealed his grand plan to us. What else do we need to understand? Paul, you just told us that all of this is done by God's good pleasure and determinate will of God. What exactly are you praying for us to have wisdom and understanding for? How is this going to change anything? The Apostle Paul didn't want the Ephesian believers to become complacent in their Christian life. He doesn't want them to think that just because they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that they don't need to grow in their understanding or experience of these blessings. So he prays that the glory of God, the one that shines a light on our darkened understanding, the God that desires that we walk in progressively clearer walk with him in light, would give them a spirit of understanding and revelation. So those of, here, of us here that have been taught on the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit are probably wondering, how can God pray that, how can Paul pray that God gives the Holy Spirit to believers? Don't they already have the Holy Spirit? Paul isn't praying for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when, he's, when he prays this. Rather, he is praying that the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in you and lives in them, ministers to them in a particular way. He's praying that the Holy Spirit opens their understanding so that they're filled with God's wisdom and God's revelation. So this isn't the same as knowing that list from 1 to 14. It is being intimate with the list from 1 to 14 of God's blessing. I was just thinking as we prayed this morning, we were praying, Jason, Jim, Gary, and I, we were praying, and we have gone through foundations of the faith, we've gone through courses, we talk about God's sovereignty. But it's when we sit here in this moment that what was up here has to come all the way down here. That we actually have to sit back and relax. We actually have to trust, Lord, you know what you're doing, and I'm going to rest in that. In a very similar way, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. Yes, they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now I'm praying that the Holy Spirit opens your hearts and minds in your life to understand in a real and intimate way what these blessings actually mean. Paul wants them to have an intimate experience with God where the list of God's great, great blessing is revealed to them in their walk in maturity. And that's exactly what we mean when we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? That's what we mean, that it's not just a rote set of things that we want to follow or acknowledge. It's also something that gets applied and understood and experienced in our life. So Paul wants the reality of the spiritual blessing to be seen and experienced in their life. We will see how this plays out in the weeks ahead as we look at the rest of the books of Ephesians. The knowledge of God is going to break down hostility between groups of people in the church. The knowledge of God is going to help believers put off the old man and put on the new character of Christ. The knowledge of God is going to transform them to put sin away and build one another up with hymns and psalms and spiritual songs as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The knowledge of God is going to transform husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. 
The knowledge of God will, ha- will help children obey their parents and fathers ra- raise their children in the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of God will help the church as they put on the armor of God and through prayer they war against spiritual forces. Paul doesn't just want them to know facts, but through the Spirit of God, they're going to experience the transformation that the knowledge of God can make in marriages, families, churches, and communities. What is this knowledge he prays that the Spirit of God would enlighten them with? So he has three things that he specifically prays for. Let's look at the beginning of verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul wants to understand, first of all, the hope of God's calling. Why do the believers in Ephesus need to understand hope? Did you see that? That you may know or understand hope. Don't we just need to hope? Hope? I hope you have a safe 2021. I hope you have a happy new year. I hope you do well. That's hope, right? This kind of hope that the world throws around is not confidence. It's a dream. It's a wish, an imagination that is created to console us to forget the troubles we face today. That's what that hope is. It still leaves us uncertain about the future. If I hope you have a good 2021, does that give you confidence about 2021? No, it doesn't. It's just a wish and a dream, right? Has anyone ever asked us to understand hope? Of course not. How can we understand the vain imagination and dream of a depraved human that never really resolves our deepest fears? How can we understand that? In contrast, the hope that God gives, the hope that comes with his calling, is directed towards a sovereign God. It's not directed towards a good 2021. It's not directed towards a safe drive home. It's directed towards a sovereign God rather than a dream, a wish, or a hope. This is a confidence that God will protect and ultimately deliver us purely for this reason alone, because He has determined to do so. That's the confidence. God has determined to protect us and vindicate us. Therefore, we have confidence in Him. And He will fulfill whatever He determines to do. It is a hope that knows that God, who has a plan, will work it out to completion. It's a hope that looks back to the cross and the work of God. And then looks forward to the day when all things will be headed by Christ a day when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Much more, how is this hope produced? This hope is produced by God's calling. The word calling is closely associated with the word election in in, in Scripture, God's predetermined plan and action. Paul's prayer was that the Ephesian believers would understand the fact of God's sovereign election in order to make them part of the family. When they understood that fact through the work of the Spirit, it would result in confident hope in God who would bring the plan to completion. Let's look at the rest of verse 18. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the second one. 
understanding the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. Paul continues to say that he doesn't just desire that they understand the hope produced by God's call, but they also understand God's glorious inheritance. Now, look at this. The inheritance doesn't belong to the saints. It's not the saints' inheritance. The inheritance belongs to God himself. A glorious father has a glorious inheritance. And what's this inheritance that Paul speaks of? If you remember, Paul reminds the believers in verse 11 that they have been obtained as an inheritance. Some of our Bibles say you have obtained an inheritance, but the verb is a passive verb. You have been obtained as an inheritance. Who are these believers? They are both the Jews who had forehoped in Christ and the Gentiles who had believed in the gospel. Much more, Paul is trying to tell them that he prays that they understand that these believers are the rich possession in whom God wants to display the riches of his glory. He has set a high value on believers because he sees them in Christ. And from the beginning, he chose them in Christ, or should I say, chose you and me in Christ as well. God is reconciling the universe under Christ, and the church is the first fruits of this reconciliation process. Believer, do you ever wonder what's happening in the world and whether you even matter as a speck in God's plan? I want you to realize that God has set an immense worth on this community here, Westmount Bible Chapel. And it isn't by the intelligence of Pfizer or Moderna. It isn't utilizing the best resources of renewable energy. It isn't through the perfect the perfect economic design that God plans to demonstrate His glory. He is determined to display the riches of His glory to the whole universe, not Peterborough, not Ontario, not Canada, not North America, not planet Earth, not just our solar system, the whole universe. Through His people here the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints. Take that in. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Paul prayed that they would understand the calling, so the hope of the calling, the second one, that they would understand that they are God's glorious inheritance. And the third one, understand his power working in them. The third thing that Paul prays that they understand is the power of God. This is a significant phrase for the Ephesian believers because many of them used to worship Diana or Artemis of Ephesus. These people would have lived under the influence and fear of the demonic forces that represented this false god, Diana. A common type of thinking among those who believed in the presence of many gods is a fear of hostile spiritual forces and spiritual powers. They believed that these spiritual powers influenced the political and economic forces in their time. So these Gentile believers used to fear them and serve them and even manipulate these forces to ensure safety and success. The power of God, in contrast, is superior to any of these forces. And so there is no reason for any of these believers, once they understand the power of God, to fear any tyranny 
from the demonic forces of these false gods. They may be able to manipulate economic and political powers. That's the de demonic forces. They're able to manipulate economic and political powers. But all of it are, happens under the permission of the power of God. And nothing can oppose the plan that is being executed by the power of God. This great power was put on display by the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Not even demonic forces can bring someone back from the dead. But the power of God did not just defeat death, but also raised Christ to a position that is above every spiritual and physical power. What's more, this power is effective for all who believe. As believers get added to their church, they, get, they come into the realm of those rightly reconciled with Christ, and the power of God is made available to them and is adequate for their needs. He enables them in spiritual warfare and brings them to a place where they can share in His final glory in their final salvation. And the power of God that was available to the Ephesian believers is available to Westbound Bible Chapel today and is enough for you and me and for our needs. These believers, if they understood the power of God available to them, they would not fear any of the forces at play. They wouldn't fear them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't fear those forces that were around them. There is no need to fear the forces that manipulate politics, economics, or society that try to prevent the church from displaying God's glory, engaging in spiritual warfare, and participating in the glory of God. What are ways in which we can comprehend and understand this hope, this glory, and this power? God's Spirit reveals this in the gathering of His people, where He is worshipped, where His Word is read, and His glory is revealed to the universe. This is why we gather here week after week, because it is here, beloved, that God's Spirit helps us understand and comprehend these things so that our lives will be transformed. We looked at Paul's prayer. I now want us to look at God's power. As we considered the prayer of Paul, he prayed that those believers would grow in understanding and the hope of God's calling, that they understood God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and that they understood the greatness of God's power toward us. Let's read verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul now proceeds to explain what the power of God is as a continuation from the third point of his prayer. The power is the one that God worked in Christ, according to the ESV. He worked in Christ. But if we had to use other words, we can say he exerted this power in Christ, or he exercised this power in Christ. And Paul uses this word in verse 11. In verse 11, he tells us that God works all things according to the power of his will, or he exercises all things, or he exerts all things according to the power of his will. And this strength was exerted in Christ Jesus' resurrection. What this means is that the power of God is a life-giving power. The one that raised Christ from the dead is also the source of Christ's resurrection life. The resurrection life that Christ in His human body has today is the exercise of God's power. And what does this mean for the believers who read the letter, the believers in Ephesus? And what does this mean for you and me? What this means is that the resurrection of our bodies is guaranteed. If the power of God 
can raise Christ Jesus from the dead. He will give life to our mortal bodies. This is the Father's power emanating from the Father. It raised Christ from the dead and gave him a new vitality. And that resurrection power flows from Christ to all of us who are in Christ. We are a new creation with new life because we have union with Christ. What's more, there's one more way that this power was exercised. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realm, in the heavenlies or heavenly places, as the ESV Bible says. The right hand is the place of power and a place of honor. One might even say it's the position of sovereignty. What this indicates is that Jesus is exalted above every position and with all authority. Dave read to us today from Psalm 8. In it, it says, God had exalted the Son of Man to have dominion over all things. The apostles recognized the exaltation of Christ as a fulfillment of Psalm 8, verse 6. Christ has been inaugurated as Lord over all, and the power that exalted him to the position above every spiritual and physical authority now secures your existence and my existence on earth. The same power that exalted Christ above every, every power, you name it, name the most powerful person on earth that ever existed. You name the most powerful spirit that exists. Christ is above that. And that same power that exalted Christ secures you and me today on this earth. What does this mean, brother and sister? Your very existence is not determined by human government. Your parent, your spouse, your friends, your siblings, your educators, your mayor, your minister of parliament, your prime minister, your queen, they are not the ones that determine your existence and sustenance. The power that exalted Christ to the highest seat of authority in the universe is what ensures your ongoing existence. Turn to 21 and 22. Much more now, Christ exercises the full authority of the Father. Let's look at verse 21 and the beginning of 22. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Look at those words, rule, authority, power, dominion. Those are words for spiritual forces, demons that are disobedient to God and rebel against him. These also relate to the same forces that the Ephesian believers were afraid of as pagans, right? They used to worship them and they used to be afraid of them. Christ is not just above these forces, but Christ is also the one under whose feet God will bring them to subjection. This is important because when believers wage spiritual warfare, we have to understand that these forces are subject to Christ and will one day be defeated by him if they are not obedient to him. Paul highlights that the authority of Christ is not only good in this age, but also in the one to come. This is important as many of us live in the present as though Christ is not victorious today. We live today as though Christ will be victorious in the future. 
some of us live today as though Christ is victorious today, but I'm not completely sure if he's going to be victorious in the future. Maybe, maybe not, right? Perhaps maybe one of these other forces are going to win. But Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they live in a time that overlaps two ages. The old age is coming to an end, and the end times were at hand. And Christ is the highest authority now and will be the highest authority in the future. Let us not be mistaken to think that Christ's authority is still awaiting maturity, that for now these lesser authorities can overtake him, but one day he will have to fight them and then become victorious. Don't be mistaken. Christ is authoritative today and will be in the future. Again, Psalm 8 verse 6, we read that God has placed all things under his feet. Paul isn't telling us that all things are inferior to Christ. That's not what he's saying. He is telling us that all things are subject to Christ. They are under his authority. The fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is assurance to you and me that all things are subject and will be subject to Christ at the right time. Christ is exalted above every power. Christ is exalted above every name. Christ is exalted every, above every authority. Christ is exalted for all time. And this is the demonstration of God's power that is made available to you and me. We saw the prayer of Paul. We considered the power of God exercised in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. I want us to look at the third point, the position of the church. God has done something marvelous. God has also exercised his power in this universe. What is the church's position in all of the reconciling that God is doing? How are things in the heavenly places playing out here on earth? Let's look at the, beginning, or the second half of verse 22. It says, And gave him as head over all things to the church. And gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church. The text simply says this. God has made Christ the head over all things. That's the universe. And this is for the benefit of the church or those who gather around him in fellowship. And we acknowledge that he is our authority and he is our leader. He is the head of the church as well. This local church, Westmount Bible Chapel, is a concrete, visible expression of this gathering around Christ. Even as the church at Ephesus was a gathering in that city as a visible expression of the gathering of God's people. The church has Christ as its head. He is the one that is superior to all powers and under whom all things are subject, Christ. This Christ serves for the benefit of the church. He is both the authority of the church and the source of life and power of the church. We get, uh, uh, we get our life and power from this risen Christ, and he is also our authority. The church on earth can now live in victory because Christ, her head, is also the head over all things in the universe. Christ, the church has Christ as her head. Now let's look at verse 23. Christ is not, is not only the head of the church, but the church is his body. In verse 23, it says, which is his body? The church is also the body of Christ. What this means is just as the body and the head have a seamless connection. When we talk about a person, we don't talk about their head and then talk about their body, right? The head and the body have a seamless connection to make one person. And so just as the head and the body have a seamless connection, they're one unit, the church and Christ are connected. 
even though Christ is located in the heavens and the church is located on earth. There is one more aspect that's not completely apparent when you read the text, is that the church is a singular entity that is directed by Christ. And this is completely different from a corporation. Um, In a corporation, an employee has to do the work given by their head, namely their manager or their board of directors or the shareholders. But in the church, every member is bound to the head and to one another, not just to get work done, but for their very life and survival. And so what we see here is the connection, not just vertically, but also horizontally. And the magnificent position of the church is that she is in a deep, binding relationship with Christ. And you, beloved, you're bound to Christ also as a member of the church. The one that is over all, Christ in heaven, is mysteriously linked and bound up with us believers on earth. And by that measure, his direction, life, and sustenance flow to the church. And because of that, it flows to you and me. Next, verse 23, the second half. The church has Christ as her head. The church is the body of Christ. Let us consider the last part of verse 23. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. When we read the text of the Old Testament regarding the tabernacle and the temple, one phrase that sticks out is that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle or that it filled the temple uh, made by Solomon, or that it filled the temple in the vision that Isaiah saw, or that it will fill the new Jerusalem. What Paul is trying to tell us is that the church is the focus of God's presence and rule in the universe. It is in the church that God's abiding presence exists. He lives with, in, and among his people. Even though God is the Lord of the universe, his glory and presence dwell in the church. Do you see why, brothers and sisters, it is paramount that we gather together? It's not an issue of legality, whether it's legal for us to gather together or not. It's not an issue of ritual, whether we should be gathering every Sunday or not. It is a recognition that right here in this place, this place in the gathering of God's people, God has chosen to fill the very presence that rules over the universe. Let me put this another way for you and me. The most powerful person in the entire universe has decided to call Westmount Bible Chapel their home and the center of their operations in the universe. He has said that the gathering of saints in this place is his home, the White House of the universe. Not just that, He says that the gathering of the saints is the demonstration to the universe that he is glorious, that he is in charge, and that he is victorious. In the gathering of these human beings in this room is where he has put his spirit, his grace, his gifts. That is his fullness. The greatness of the one seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places is put on display on earth in this gathering of frail human beings. Paul's prayer is that believers might know God, 
the demonstration of God's power and the position of all the church. And this leads us to one question, the question we started out with. How am I to face 2021? Let's read verse 15. This is the reason Paul thanks God for the Ephesian believers, and it's contained in this verse, and I think it should encourage us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. I hope after considering that all that God has done and is doing, that faith in the Lord Jesus isn't canned into a prayer that you prayed a few years ago. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the realization and commitment to the one God has exalted, the one that we are bound up with, the one that directs us and gives us life, the one that has chosen to make his home right here in our midst. The faith, that faith, is what will carry you through 2021, the trust in a confident hope that God will carry out his plan. What does that faith result in? It results in love toward all the saints. I want to encourage you to continue loving the saints in this body. When the lockdowns took place nine to ten months ago, and through the ups and downs this body has faced, you have been relentless in your selfless love. I want to encourage you. You have been fearless in your sacrifice. I want to encourage you. You have been confident in encouraging one another with a hope in Christ. I want to encourage you. You have been persistent in gathering with God's people, especially today. With the time you have, I want to encourage you. Continue in that with greater confidence in the one who has called you, even as the Spirit of God sheds light in your heart regarding the universal plan of God and the intimate presence of God with us, his people. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We thank you that the hope of your calling encourages us. God, who determined, even before the words, let there be light, came out of your mouth, determined that we would be yours, holy and blameless before you. In love, you predestined us to adoption. Lord, we are grateful that we are on the winning team, the one that has the power of God, the power of God that rose Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him above every spiritual and physical name and authority. The power of God that is available to us to give lives to our mortal bodies and sustain us today as we have needs to, to war spiritually, to live holy, and to share in the glory that is coming. Give us this hope as we go into 2021, 20, not in a vaccination, not in masks, not in social distancing. Those two will pass away. Something else will come up. Something else is going to shake our foundation. Something else is going to shake society. But Lord, help our trust and our confidence be in the one that has determined and will fulfill what he has determined. Help us trust your sovereign power, plan, and presence. Thank you for your presence among us. Lord, though you are exalted amongst the heavens, your presence is with us. Even today, we can rejoice in Emmanuel, God with us. 
And so we thank you and we praise you in Christ Jesus, the Lord's precious name. Amen.